Welcome to the Work-Life Brilliance Podcast with executive coach and best-selling author, Denise Renee Green. Denise fills each episode with humor, compassion, knowledge, and pragmatism to help you transform your life. Listen in and learn how you can tame your brain, lower your stress, and become the person you were born to be. Hello, my friend. Welcome. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. It is a gloriously beautiful day here in Oakland, California, and um, it just dawned on me that this is a holiday weekend. It is a three-day weekend, and um, some people would call this work that I'm doing right now, and I guess technically it is work, but I love it. So um, I have just been on a hike with my dog, and I'm about to go to the pool with friends, so yeah, I thought I'd squeeze in a little message about strengths and weaknesses. Which ones do we focus on? And it's not always intuitive. So I have brought some research with us today. Uh, It's one of those things like, if you don't believe me, go look at the research. And this research you can find in more details in a book called The Extraordinary Leader by Joe Folkman and Jack Zanger. And I love the title because it really fits with what I am trying to do in the world with Brilliance Inc. And that is elevating people beyond the ordinary to the extraordinary, the extraordinary life, the extraordinary skill set, the extraordinary capabilities, the extraordinary happiness and joy and bliss that we can all potentially feel more often. So this week, I had the pleasure of closing out one of my group coaching cohorts. This is this amazing, lovely collection of six corporate managers and leaders. And it was a love fest. And I have been introducing this piece of research into my closing session for the the last year and a half. And people have insights and really enjoy this information. So we're going to talk about it in the context of if you work in a corporate job. Um, But I'm also going to toss in, for those of us who don't work in corporate jobs, how to make the most of this research if if you are an entrepreneur, solopreneur. So first of all, let's talk about how most of us get information when we have a job and when we have a manager How do we get information about how we're doing? Well, commonly, it's through anonymous 360 surveys. And, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to bash on 360 surveys right now. They have, um, they give us some information. They give us really important information about other people's perceptions. And then we have to figure out what to make of those perceptions. So often, our managers will get feedback about us and then give us a performance review. And sometimes we will go through a process called an anonymous 360, and sometimes we will share that with our manager, sometimes we don't. But we make all sorts of assumptions based on how our brain is wired and how we have been trained to look at these things. So when your survey report comes back, you might have a graph, you might have a chart of some sort, And that chart is possibly going to look like a city skyline 
with some buildings being tall and some buildings being sort of medium and some buildings being sort of short based on how people said you behaved in those, arid, um, in those areas. And the authors of the book, Extraordinary Leader, came up with five competency areas when they looked at thousands and thousands of data points from 360 surveys all across um, the United States. And the five groups that they were able to bundle behaviors under were, were character, personal capability, focus on results, interpersonal skills, so how you get results is interpersonal skills, of course, and then leading organizational change. So this was for top leaders. For uh, lower level leaders, leading organizational change would be relative. Um, and it may be um, more about adapting to change. So you get your report back, and you've got these five competency categories. And there are a bunch of questions under each of those. And you get this graph, and you look at your graph, and what do you do? What do you make of this jumble of, you know, maybe 50 questions? Most people will look at their report, focus on the lowest level rating, and decide, I need to work on that. Or their manager will look at that and say, yeah, you need to work on that. Or maybe we find three or four or one in every competency that's lower than the others, and we say, yeah, you should really focus on that. And what the research showed was that that is the absolute worst strategy, unless that low-level score that you're working to improve is what they called a fatal flaw. I don't like the word fatal flaw because it makes it sound like your career is dead. Um, it might be on the way to dying, but it's not dead yet, but it will derail you from being successful. And they said that the fatal flaws or the derailers happened in these areas. If you had an inability to learn from a mistake and that bore out in the scores, then people were really not happy with you. If you had a serious lack of core interpersonal skills, so maybe um, you are obnoxious, you yell at people, you're just a terrible listener, you interrupt, then I don't care how smart you are, um, this is going to derail you from being successful. If you are not open to new ideas, that would be considered a derailer. If you don't show accountability, so if you blame everybody else for what you're doing, that would be a derailer. And if you just don't show any initiative, you just sit around and wait for things to happen. I think it's kind of obvious that these would be considered derailers. So if you got a low score in any of those areas, you definitely want to focus on it. It's going to be hard because change is hard and habits have been entrenched for a very long time, but it is worth it to your well-being and it is worth it to your career's well-being. But other than that, like let's say you're not so good at strategy. Well, Unless you're the chief strategy officer, it's possible that no one cares. It's a matter of degree of interpretation. So what the researchers found was that only if something fell below the 30th percentile, 
Like on your chart, it looked like a really, really low score. Then you needed to shore that up or it could become a fatal flaw to you. But most people don't have anything that low. Most people are kind of in the middle range. So then what? Then what do you focus on? You know, I looked at a bunch of these reports and they looked like city skylines to me. And I started thinking about extraordinary and dull city skylines, just to highlight and help people understand what this concept means. So I put together a presentation and I put lots of anonymous cities um, without, you know, I put the city skyline up there on the PowerPoint presentation, but I did not put what the name of the city was. And I would flash a city up on the screen and see if people could recognize it. And I know I was in Texas and I flashed uh, a picture of Austin up. And guess how many people in the room, I think we had about 20 people in the room, guess how many knew what city that was? Uh, there wasn't a single person who got it right. I didn't tell them it was in Texas, but it, you know, it was, and nobody got it right. Then I flashed a picture of Seattle up on the screen. Guess how many people got it right? Yes, they all got it right, and you know why? It's because there is one particular building in Seattle that makes it instantly recognizable. Same thing with Paris. And then I showed London. London has so many recognizable, amazing structures, whether it's Big Ben or the Gherkin or the uh, huge wheel, that it's not only immediately recognizable, but it's really extraordinary. So I use these metaphors because that is exactly what the research showed. Unless your skyline had a really squat, dilapidated building in it, um, you didn't need to shore it up. But maybe you needed to add some stories to one of the very tall buildings, but that wasn't quite as tall as the others. So it, it made no sense, uh, research-wise found, it made no sense to work on something unless that strength was already at the 70th percentile. Because if you worked on something between the 30th and 70th percentiles, so, you know, in the middle, that's a big range, if you shored something up and took it, like, from a 50% skill to now you're in the 70th percent of people who do this well, uh, it didn't matter. You had to be working on something that was either a fatal flaw and you brought it up to at least you don't suck that bad anymore at it, or you needed to shore up something that you were good at and make it even stronger. They also found that you didn't have to have a lot of strengths. If you only had two strengths, so two strengths, two superpowers in your, in your survey, you would be already in the top third of all leaders. And if you had three strengths, you're going to be in the 81st percentile. So compared to all your peers, um, two out of 10 are going to be top leaders compared to you. But the rest of them, you outshine. That only took three strengths. And if you had four strengths, forget about it. If you have four strengths and no derailer, you are going to be in the top 10% of all leaders. So there's a rub. 
they found that you could be the most extraordinary leader in your company if you had a powerful combination of two skills. And what they did was they just teased out the, they teased out the research and found that there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 12 pairs, 12 pairs of competencies that when somebody was good at both of them, they were going to be extraordinary as long as they did not have one of those derailing critical faults. So I'm going to share with you what they are. And I want you to think about your own experience. When have you worked for a leader that had these traits? Because you'll know, oh yeah, that person was extraordinary. I love working for that person. Or when did you work for somebody who didn't or only had one of these? Like, mm, yeah, they were okay. So the first one is providing feedback and trusted. That's the first powerful combination. And you've probably heard me say in other podcasts or trainings that if you don't have somebody's trust, it does not matter how skillful you are at providing feedback because they won't hear it. But if you are a person who is confident and skillful at giving feedback and people trust that you have their best interests at heart, they are going to want to follow you because you are going to help them grow. You are going to shine a light on things that they don't necessarily see, and you're going to help them become more powerful and know what to focus on. So that's the first pair. The next one is interpersonal skills and listening. So it's one thing to have interpersonal skills, you know, good communication skills, friendliness, um, make good eye contact. But if you don't listen, it's not going to matter how charismatic your interpersonal skills are and how friendly you are. Um, listening is one of the things that I say, hey, you know what? Listening is going to make everything you do more effective. And if listening is in the tank score-wise, I consider that a fatal flaw. Um, just based on what I've seen with my clients, what I've seen in life, it does not matter. If you cannot listen to people, they won't trust you. You won't get good information, and it doesn't matter what other skills you have. The next pair was inspiring and motivating others combined with technical skills. I love this one. So how often do we see somebody really technical who could not inspire somebody to get out of a box? Same thing. You might be really inspiring and motivating, but if you don't know your stuff, if you don't have expertise and they can't come to you for technical skills expertise, they, they might still find you inspiring, but you're not going to be as powerful as this rare combination. The next one is ability to influence combined with being well-informed. So you're going to be much more credible as an influencer if you have your facts straight and if you have lots of facts. And then you get to pick and tailor the facts to influence the person you're speaking with because influence happens in the other person. And if you don't have enough information, you're going to be giving them information that would influence you but not necessarily them. The next pair is connecting to the outside world, whether it's outside your department, outside your company, outside your country, to inspiring and motivating others. Because you're going to be bringing much more powerful information if you can also connect people to the outside world while you're motivating. The next one is innovation and technical expertise. Again, you can be innovative, but if you don't know what you're doing, it's not as powerful. Then we have innovation again, 
combined with strategic. It's one thing to innovate uh, processes now, but it's a whole other thing to influence for the future. And that makes you more powerful, especially in corporate in, in the corporate world. People are always trying to get ahead of the future, getting ahead of the competition, and having people that can innovate and be strategic about it is very powerful. The next one combination is developing others and building a strong and unified team. Because it's great if you can help develop individuals, but if you can also help those individuals become a strong and unified team, wow, that is the kind of team that people want to be on. The next one is communicating powerfully and focusing on results. I don't know about you, but I have definitely worked for people who were good communicators, but didn't get stuff done. And man, it was frustrating because we all want to feel a sense of progress. Or they were all focused on results, but we didn't know what results they wanted because they couldn't communicate powerfully. The next one is teamwork and setting high standards and stretch goals. So it's great if you can build uh, a team that trusts each other. But if that team doesn't feel like they are high performing and reaching those goals, then they're not going to feel very satisfied. They're like, yeah, we like each other, but so what? And then the last one is being strategic and solving problems. So I meet a lot of people who are really good at solving today's problems. But what about solving problems that fix things that may happen in the future? So long-term problem solving. Problem solving not just for today. So if you had just one of those powerful combina combinations, you were going to be among the top leaders in your firm. So in my group coaching closeout session, I ask people to just go down the list and say, which, one is, which ones of these competencies do you think you're already really good at? And most of us know what we're really good at, but you can measure that by praise that people give you, uh, projects people often give you, help people ask for, and things that you really enjoy doing. Because the brain wants you to seek out pleasure. So if you end up finding that you are just easily working on strategic planning or going out and seeking information to connect people to the outside world or learning more about your technical uh, specialty, then that is going to be a strength of yours because your brain wouldn't send you out to do that unless it had a very good reason or unless it felt really good. And here's the bottom line. Working on strengths feels really good. Using our strengths puts us in a state of flow. And we know this from the research that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi did. And he has this beautiful, um, well, let's just call it a flow chart, flow model. So you can just Google flow model and don't worry about spelling his name. It will come up. He has about a million consonants in his name. And what it shows is that we are at our happiest, that place where we feel like time is moving so quickly. And we are in this state of activity that is just immersing us. And nothing else seems to matter. 
And that is a state of flow because we are enjoying this experience so much, whereas somebody else might find this uh, very stressful. And the way you get into a state of flow is by working on something that is challenging. So it doesn't come necessarily super easy. You're pushing yourself a little bit beyond what's comfortable. But you're also an expert at this. So maybe you're working a little bit more focused than you normally would. Say if you are a writer, you are in flow when you um, have a great idea and you are just hammering out this chapter and you're excited about it. If you're a web designer, then you are in flow when you are creating a beautiful, functional website. But only if that website is challenging enough for you. If it's really easy, then you're going to be in what he calls a relaxation state. And the opposite of flow is apathy. When you have a simple task to do, and it's not an area of your strength, you just don't really care. You might get it done, but you're definitely not going to be in an arousal state or in a flow state. And we feel immense stress, or in his words, worry and anxiety, when we are working on a task that is very challenging and for which we have very low skill. So those are things we want to avoid at all costs. And if you're going to be developing a skill, you want to practice on things that aren't very challenging. It makes a lot of sense. But a lot of times, when people are trying to develop their people, they give them these tasks that put them in the worry and anxiety zone. And that is not the place where your brain is going to let you grow. So I was thinking about this from an entrepreneur perspective. And I was thinking about it personally for me as a coach. And I was trying to figure out, you know, where do I have powerful combina combinations? And then where do I have stress? And I have noticed that over the past years, especially the past year, I have had to take on tasks that used to produce extreme anxiety in me. Um, and if you're an entrepreneur, you often have to do way more tasks than you feel comfortable doing because our job descriptions as solopreneurs and entrepreneurs can include a lot of things. And especially when you don't have a big team. I love to have a team of specialists, um, but I can't afford an enormous team. And as an entrepreneur, it doesn't make sense. I need to be able to do some things for myself. So a fatal flaw, if you are an entrepreneur, I would say would be pessimism. Uh, we also need not just optimism, but we need persistence. The opposite would be procrastination. If you procrastinate as an entrepreneur, it is a fatal flaw. If you can't problem solve, that can be a fatal flaw because we constantly run into challenges and we have to believe that we can overcome and then persist to overcome and Google stuff, <laughs> whatever it takes to problem solve, we have to believe that we can do it. We can't just, you know, ask the neighbor in the cubicle next door or log a IT ticket. We have to find ways to solve them. We cannot just allow ourselves to get stuck. So that might fall under the lack of initiative competency group. 
And I know that I have changed my brain when it comes to problem solving. I still have a lot of work to do. Um, And right now I am so out of my zone on some things like sales and marketing. Um, Those just freak me out. I I will, let's see, if I'm looking at the zone, um, I would say they cause me some worry and some some anxiety. Um, But I am getting to a place where I am starting to feel better about these things. And my brain knows that even though it's challenging right now, I am growing. And with every time I repeat and overcome a challenge, I get a little dopamine hit and I get a new neural pathway or some new synapses off that new neural pathway. And if I keep at it, eventually I am going to have problem solving as a natural strength. Now, Will it be as strong as one of my favorite strengths, which is uh, listening or creating? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I will use problem solving when it comes to creating material that helps other people solve their problems or creating material that explains a concept in a way that people can grasp quickly. For me, that is one of the most exciting things I do. And also, giving feedback and earning people's trust. That was the top pairing of powerful combinations. And it is something that the trust part um, came pretty naturally to me, but the giving feedback didn't. I had to overcome my limiting thoughts around that. And so if you can't manage your thoughts, they don't measure this in 360s, in anonymous 360 surveys. But as you know, It is the most vital skill we can learn. If you can notice and upgrade your thoughts to be in alignment with the actions you want to take, I wish they would measure that because that is the true mark of a person who is capable of being truly, truly extraordinary. And as you know, um, I can help you do this. You can go visit the website work-lifebrilliance.com. Find some tools on that. You can listen to podcast number three about steering your thoughts or many other podcasts to help you be your most brilliant self. You choose. But please, don't try and work on something because you think you should, because you're just okay at it. You know, I have people take my one-page brilliant life assessment, and in the closing session, a gentleman said to me, yeah, I know. I probably need to improve how I eat. And I looked at him and I said, wow, you sound so excited about that. (laughs) He didn't say the word should, but it was just kind of written in capital letters um, in red above his head. And I said, really? I mean, why? Do Do you really, are you really ready for this? How's your blood sugar? He said, it's fine. I take cinnamon every day. It's good. It's in the normal range. Really good. Okay. So what's motivating you? It's like, "Mm, I just feel like it's the thing I'm supposed to do. Um, And we had a conversation. And I said, you have either got to convert this thing to a must do, which means you got to find a reason so compelling that your brain is willing to say, yeah, I'm willing to give up all that food and switch it for this food. And I'm going to be excited to do that. Or you've got to drop the guilt and focus on something else. And This person, this man is so amazing. And the thing that has benefited him the most 
is changing what he assumes about what other people know. He was not giving people enough information because he assumed that he was telling them something they already knew. Well, guess what? He got a new boss, and it was the perfect, perfect environment for him to practice this new behavior because he realized she doesn't know what she doesn't know, and I am in a place of service to help her. So this noble intent he had of not wasting people's time with information, now he picks up the phone rather than try and write a 10-page email and says, hey, let's, let's chat. And it has skyrocketed him. So what was already a strength just with a tiny little tweak, people are now looking to him as the leader that he truly is. So yeah, if he wants to go and improve his diet, great, I'm there for him. But um, right now, it's not worthy of his investment of time. And I want you to think about, what do you tell yourself you should do on a regular basis? And instead, think about, what am I already great at that if I spent more time making myself even stronger at this, I would surpass all the competition? And what powerful combination? So for example, um, being strategic and problem solving. So I'm gonna hit a million obstacles on the way to making my plan happen. What if I confront all those obstacles with confidence and with persistence? Well, then I'm going to have extraordinary results. So thank you for listening. And if you want to be coached live on one of these podcasts, please send me an email to denise at brilliance.inc.com and tell me what your situation is. And please go and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for listening to Work-Life Brilliance. If you want to be coached by Denise, join her in the Work-Life Brilliance Academy, where wholehearted humans are becoming the best version of themselves. Accepting applications now at wlbacademy.com.